Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Lindsay Moran is the author of the best-selling memoir, Boy, My Cover, My Life is a CIA Spy. She's also a consultant expert on national security, intelligence, and human trafficking. She is a mother and a citizen journalist doing everything in her power to help deliver fund, fight human trafficking, and global sex slavery. Lindsay, this has been a long time coming. There's been a lot of things going on in everybody's, in both of our lives. Thank you for taking the time and thank you for what you're doing with the work that you have done and then the work that you are continuing to do with your platform and your experience and your name and everything that you're putting out there. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here at long last. And thank you so much for the signed copy of this incredible book. I am excited. You were so nice to send that to me. And I put a little bit of questionnaires out before I got started. And one of the biggest questions was, what's the biggest misconception about being a CIA spy out there right now? Right now or like through history? I was going to say, whatever you think, you're the expert. So I trust your opinion. I think the biggest misconception is that spies are like James Bond or Jason Bourne. You're not Jason Bourne? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I, or the thing that I really, really wanted to do when I wrote Blowing My Cover, above all, was to put a human face on what it is to be a quote unquote spy. And I think I succeeded in that. And I think there've been a few attempts in Hollywood that have succeeded in that. But I would say that, yeah, the biggest misconception is that they're not human beings, that they're not people with regular human emotions and vulnerabilities and motivations. It's not exactly a nine to five job where you punch a clock, but at the same time, there's a lot of other complexities going on with the human animal and within the confines of that job description. And you mentioned that you yourself have some pet peeves about the way that the CIA kind of is portrayed in movies and things like that. <laughs> so I have a long list of pet peeves. <laughs> Everybody sit down. Here we go. So I'm only going to touch upon like the top few. And I think these are probably pretty universal to former CIA case officers. That What an actual CIA agent or spy, what people think of as a CIA agent or a spy is actually in our minds, a CIA operations officer or case officer. There's like a very specific term for it. And case officer doesn't sound sexy. It doesn't sound sexy like spy, but CIA people or CIA ops officers bristle at that term spy or agent because we think of spies as the traitors and the agents as the people that we're handling. But that's like a really, really dorky pet peeve. My real sort of overarching pet peeve is this notion that intelligence officers are these like badasses in cat suits, wearing stilettos and like running through the streets of Berlin. And the reality is like so much different. You, you have to have comfortable walking shoes to be so I think that's probably like my biggest pet peeve that they're portrayed as kind of superhuman or superheroes and not actual human beings because the actual human beings who go into this career are 10 times more interesting, I think, than like a typical superhero. I would agree. And there's a certain set of soft skills that you have to have to be really good at this as well, correct? Yeah. Well, that's a good way to put it. I would think if I could answer that last question more succinctly, I would say the misconception that hard skills supersede soft skills in this business, because really being a collector of human intelligence, being a CIA ops officer is so much more about 
some things that are innate, your innate intuition, your innate people skills, and some things that are trained, but the trained things are really interesting. They're more psychological in nature. Being able to figure out in a nutshell, what makes someone else tick? What are someone else's vulnerabilities and motivations? So, I mean, it's kind of funny. The CIA is portrayed and maybe perceived as a super badass organization. And if you think about what it really takes to do that job well, it's actually like a little bit new agey even. (laughs) It's like real people skills. And I think that you had incredible instincts to begin with before you even get involved, but then learning these other skill sets, these almost tactical ideas from a psychological standpoint gives you like this very honed precision instrument, so to speak, whenever you're in the field. It does. I think that I joined the agency with kind of a lot of intuition to begin with and social skills, but what the agency really trained me to do, and I mean, it's a little bit distasteful to say, is to use those skills, to use my ability to read people, to use my ability to be able to influence people or make friends in a way to exploit that person to figure out what are those person's vulnerabilities? What are those person's motivations? And how am I, the CIA officer, how am I going to kind of prey upon those to get what I want, which is to recruit this person to give secret and sensitive information to me and de facto the U.S. government? So it's almost Machiavellian in some ways. It's very Machiavellian. And there's something super appealing about that. And then there's something also a little dehumanizing. And we can get into that later. But I think the complexities of the job and the complexities of the role of being a human intelligence officer are often what's lost in the Hollywood representations of what espionage is and and what spying and intelligence are. And that's something too, if you're anything by Robert Greene, or if you read The Prince or anything by Machiavelli, people are like, this is very dark, this is very evil, blah, 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 almost Jungian. But the reality is you have to know that in your job, one, so that you can use it, but also so that you can recognize it when people are trying to use those tactics on you. 100%. And I think the beauty of the job and also maybe a little bit the curse of it is that you have to have these really refined skills, but you also, or at least in my case, you have to have an overarching, overriding sense of mission. That is that you're serving the good because otherwise, you know, what you're doing, it's nasty. You're, you're using people and you will use them and throw them out when they are. And, and by throw them out, I don't mean like ties them and block to the ankle and throw them in the river. But, you know, when an intelligence agent and by agent, I mean, intelligence asset, a foreign source has outlived his utility to the organization. I mean, you're going to cut him off. And so you have to have a little bit of that cold-bloodedness. For me, it's like I could make my blood freeze that way, but I had to believe in that in that overall mission. But back to your original question, at the same time, you also, when you're operating in this world, have to always be cognizant of the fact that just as you're attempting to use everyone around you, Maybe everyone around you is attempting to use you. And it's a little bit jaded, but you operate in this very kind of jaded milieu. Yeah, you're in this very gray area where everything is amoral because everything is mission-driven and laser-focused. Were there any times when you were really surprised or wrong about either an asset or intel that you were getting that you were like, I'm certain that this is the truth? And then when you were kind of caught by it, it really got you sideways on it. Sadly, no, because I think (laughs) she's this pro, of course. (laughs) No, yeah. But I think one of the things that's interesting about human intelligence, and this is a hard truth, is those of us who are or were in the business are very aware that the information we're getting might not be the best information we can get. I mean, it's the information we can get, but is it the most truthful? Is it the best? the really gray zone of the world of intelligence is that you honestly never know. You never know who to believe. You never know who to trust. You can implement every sort of vetting mechanism possible, but because you're collecting human intelligence and there's so many variables in the way that information is translated, the way it's conveyed, is it truthful? Is it not? I mean, 
any one of us going through the day probably encounter two or three lies a day or untruths or euphemisms or something like that. Communication is not honest to begin with. And then you're operating in a world where people have information they don't want to give you. It's really hard to say, is it valuable? Is it valid? And at the end of the day, is it worth it? And at the same time, you know, I'm a huge proponent of gathering human intelligence as part of our military industrial complex, because I do feel like with quality intelligence and with foresight and ability to predict geopolitical shifts, that that makes our country safer and that that is worth investing money. It absolutely is. And like you said, even if we don't have the piece of intel that's like actionable right now, maybe with that person, we can see the pattern. Totally. Yeah. Maybe we can see that rhyme and rhythm. And so now if they feed you false information, you're like, this doesn't scan. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And there's a number of ways as an intelligence officer and our reports officers too, a number of tools you can use to kind of vet the information. Every intelligence report comes with a caveat about, you know, whether or not that source is intending to influence as well as, I mean, there is an awareness. Okay. People are not just committing espionage and giving us information out of idealistic reasons of Quite a few of them are just doing it for money. So we have to be cognizant of and suspicious of any of the information we get. There's so many directions I want to go with this. One of the other questions everybody was asking was, what got you involved or what made you want to join in the first place to start doing this? Because again, this is a very highly selective job, to say the least. Yeah. And this is a story I've told before and it doesn't change. But believe it or not, like from the time I was a little, little girl... I wanted to be a spy. I was sort of obsessed with Harriet the Spy book series and kind of fashioned my life after her. I was sneaky and I was subversive and I was a practical jokester. So I was kind of like always up to a little bit of no good anyway. But I grew up during the Cold War in the 80s Cold War era, very patriotic, always so proud to be American and cognizant of how lucky I was to be born in this country and cognizant of how lucky we were and are to have the rights that we do. So I did want to serve my country. I really, really felt like I wanted to to serve the United States, but I am not cut out for the military. That's just not my scene. My brother became a naval aviator and I just could tell that's I'm much more of a rule breaker than a rule follower. And so the place for those kind of people is the CIA, (laughs) because you're actually being paid to break the law, not to break U.S. laws, but to break the laws of foreign countries. You're going into a foreign country and you are breaking the law there. And that was super appealing to me. I also (laughs) had always had a, a fascination with, at that time, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. My grandfather had been a U.S. Army engineer who I strongly suspect might have been in the OSS or the very early days of the CIA. And my father did top secret work, not for the CIA, but he designed ships for the Navy. So I grew up in this very sort of Tom Clancy-esque milieu. And really, yeah, joining the CIA, it was it was just what I always wanted to do. Love the fact that it was like this almost self-fulfilling prophecy for you as a young girl. You're like, this is what I like. And like you said, you're around this like clandestine sort of existence anyway. It's like, this just makes sense to me. And you made it happen. You made your dreams come true. I will say Harriet the Spy was my second sort of female role model. The first was Pippi Longstocking, who was a pirate. So when when I was very, very little, I was like, that's what I want to be. I want to be a pirate. And then I kind of realized, okay, that's actually not really a thing. I mean, you know, (laughs) it, it has become a modern thing. In very in real way. But yeah, so so I progressed from pirate to spy and, and stuck with that. And so this kind of self-selection to get into this sort of line of work is already very daunting and it's very rigorous. And you're a female. Are there any additional obstacles that it felt like you had to go through being a female in this type of environment or the training or whatever it may be? It's interesting. There were only three people who knew that I was joining the CIA, my mother, my father, and my brother. And my brother, who, as I said, is a Navy pilot, well, all three of them were kind of opposed to me joining the CIA for different reasons. But my brother's reason was that he really felt it was not a place professional woman to thrive. And he had done research on it and showed me there'd been a class action suit against the CIA by 
female case officers or operatives, which is what I was. So I went into the agency with kind of eyes wide open about what it meant to be a woman joining this very male-dominated environment. And I have to say, in my case in particular, that never was an issue. I never felt that I was held back by being a woman. I mean, I was lucky enough, there was a generation of women before me, some of whom are very close friends of mine, and they kind of fought the fight and paved the way such that by the time I got to the agency, I can say that 40% of my training class was women. I certainly never felt held back by being a woman. But, and this is a, a little bit of a sexist and potentially un- politically incorrect comment to make. I do feel like as a woman, when you join the Directorate of Operations, the clandestine service, like you park some of your femininity at the door and you have to. And I was never a girly girl to begin with, but the Directorate of Operations is not the place for girly girls. You know, you've got to be tough in a way that I think women innately are, but it's one of those places where, yes, it is a very male dominated environment. It, It can be cold. It can be competitive. But at the same time, I've always maintained that I think the best operatives I ever met were women. I was going to say that females have a lot of advantages, especially in the field, whether it be, like you said, that instinct or in a lot of ways, I feel that women are much more resilient than men in general because they have this capacity to have the mama bear that comes out and when it's time to do something. And like you said, if it's a mission and you know that it has to be done. I think that women throughout history have shown us that they will rise to the occasion time and again. Well, I agree 100%. <laughs> and, you know, I saw it when I was at the CIA and then I've seen it leaving the CIA and becoming a mother. I mean, women get shit done, period. One of the things that I really saw at the age of a, a few things. Yes, women in some ways, I felt like were almost more prepared and advanced for some of the skills that men had to be trained in. Whether that be basic situational awareness, I, as a woman, my entire life, I've been aware of predators or dangers. I don't walk into a dark parking lot (laughs) blithely. So I think women have a lot of those skills to begin with that we've built up over time. Also, the social skills, the people skills, the ability to listen. And you mentioned something that I didn't even realize because I wasn't a mom when I joined the agency and when I was an operative, but since then became one. And that ability and drive to take care of someone that's not yourself. I mean, you're never going to treat your foreign agents like children, although sometimes I do treat my children like foreign <laughs> and view But as a woman, and particularly as a mother, you're always taking care of other people. If you're not taking care of your kids, you're taking care of your parents, you're taking care of your husband. All of these things that I think over time were conditioned to do really, really served me well as an operative. And I think in general makes women better operatives. That empathy, that ability to recognize what someone's vulnerabilities and motivations are. And then something that's really simple, which is just like most of the targets throughout the world, most of the people who have access to information are men. And with all due respect, Mark, I mean, this might not be true of you, but like it's going to be a lot easier for me to get a foreign man to go out for coffee or a drink with me than you. hundred percent agree. Yep. Yeah. Yep. In your case, I mean, yeah, maybe if it's a gay man who thinks that you're hot and you're hitting on him. Yeah. But like throughout the world, most of the targets that we're going for are heterosexual men in positions of power, positions of access. I mean, not always, but the point being that as a woman, it was so easy for me to go up and say, you know, I would love to, I'm Lindsay Moran, I'm a U.S. diplomat. And I overheard what you were saying. That was so interesting to me. I've never heard someone say that bullshit, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to have coffee and 10 times out of 10, they're not going to say no. Now, you asked me at the beginning of this talk, like, what are some of the misconceptions that bother me? And one of the misconceptions that does bother me is that the only way that a woman is effective as an Intel operative is to be a honeypot. And that's far from the case. Absolutely, you know, I would use my gender and my ability to get men to talk to me for the purpose of securing the second meeting, which is always the point of your first meeting or bump with someone. But it's also 
one thing that bothers me is this perception that that's the way female operatives are used, that they sleep with men for information. And that doesn't happen. It just doesn't. You know, there have been cases in history of female intelligence officers or much more prevalently male intelligence officers getting romantically involved with or sexually involved with some other agents. That's a no-no, by the way, but it does happen. But that's not what we're trained to do with the CIA. We're not trained to sleep with men to get information. But of course, we're going to use every advantage we have. Now, for me, it's a trade-off. You have those advantages, not for me, for every female operative. You have those advantages, but at the same time, you have the added challenge of then you're meeting with someone, your agenda is to get secret information and their agenda probably is to get laid. And so it's like, you got to get the second meeting with him. You got to flatter him. You got to make sure he keeps meeting with you. At the same time, you have to make sure he knows you're never going to sleep with him. So it's a difficult tightrope to walk. It's a delicate dance and he's going to get screwed, but he's not getting laid. Yes, exactly. That's <laughs> <laughs> what's going on. And I think also there is that ability, like you said, you're this exotic American. And so that even affords you in some ways, even more of that ability to create the chase, to create the distance, to make implications, to have inferences about potentials of things, and then still be very fluid in that ability to get close, be far away, get close enough to be far away. And I think that again, as you're saying that, and even when you said that first thing about getting the coffee thing, like I can see that you're just going right back into this is not your first time saying those words and this is what you do. It's neat to see you switch into that. That's incredible because I want to have coffee with you. And it's like, wow, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Whatever you just said, that was impressive. And so we've talked about the female operatives. You talked about the fact that you got in and you eventually left. Do you wish you'd stayed? Well, that's a question that I rarely get. And it's one that I think about probably more often than one would imagine. I don't wish that I had stayed. I mean, I can answer it rather simply in that I don't wish that I had stayed because the way that I make decisions in life that so far as I can tell has never steered me wrong is I look at the two or three or four, however many options I have ahead of me, however many paths in the road. And I ask myself five years from now, what is going to make me say what if? And that's the road that I don't want to take. And it's usually pretty easy to delineate or to figure out what is that road that I could take that five years down the road, I'll say, well, what if I did that? And then I know that's not where I want to go. So at the time that I left the agency, there were a number of things at play that there was the Iraq war and I was working in Iraqi operations. And I knew for a fact that what was being told to the American public about weapons of mass destruction, about links between Iraq and Al-Qaeda was not true. So that bothered me because, as I said in the beginning, I joined the agency because I wanted to serve my country. And to me, you know, at that point, I could see in, in real time U.S. population being sold a bill of goods. There was the onset of what was called the Enhanced Interrogation Program at the CIA, which is where we started to use torture, basically, that had never been something that we as the U.S. or the CIA had done. And then there were personal reasons, which was I had crazy maternal instincts. I didn't care about getting married, but I wanted to have kids. And I looked at what it was, the women that I knew who were mothers and who were also CIA operatives. And I had tremendous admiration for them, but I could also see at the same time what a tremendous toll it took on these women to balance those two roles. It's always hard to be a working mom, you know, no matter what it's hard to be a working mom, but this particular profession, I was like, I'm not sure I want to do this for the rest of my life. So in a nutshell, I don't ever regret leaving, but it's like, I can't keep my foot out of that door. You know, I'm always still interested. I'm, I'm very involved in the community, friends with a lot of people who were or are there. And as much as I poked fun at the CIA in my book, 
kind of pulled back the curtain on some of the things that are not so sexy or amazing about the agency, I have to say that I met some of the most amazing people there. And I, and I miss some of those people and I, and I miss our camaraderie. And I like that you spoke to that idea of being a mother because, again, you're putting yourself in harm's way. You are in some very real danger. And if you have anything that's going to inhibit your capacity to focus on that target, on that moment, on that intel, on that anything, it puts both you and your child in danger vicariously. So the saying that they say in the military is the minute you're jumping out of the airplane and you're no longer nervous, you need to be afraid because you're either missing something or it becomes so habit or anything like pointing your weapon downrange or whatever it is like that safety has to be there all the time. Totally. Yeah. We actually got airborne qualified when we were going through training. What? Yeah. Fort Benny, yeah. come on. The, That's um, amazing. Yeah. So I only jumped out six times. Yeah. You only need five. You got it. <laughs> but no, it's funny that you say that about being nervous because I definitely remember my nerves the first time. I don't remember my nerves the other five times. But the last time you've got it <laughs> down, you just like hook up, shuffle, get to the door. Jump right out and count to four. It was so much fun, but I was ob- obsessed about. We were trained, obviously, you know, okay, what to do in a water, wire, or tree landing. And I was just like, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, we would like talk about which would be the worst, the water, the wire, or the tree. I think bizarrely, because I'm a really good swimmer, I think for some reason the water landing was was the most stressful was possibility to me. <laughs> yeah, especially if that thing rolls over and it's dark and you're like, shit, where am I at? You're discombobulated. You're trying to get the hell out of there. You're following the bubbles. But if you can't see where the bubbles are, then you can't get out. Yeah, there's a lot of field crafts that's required for sure. And I was making a comment about female officers also. Some of the skill set, every woman that I've ever taught to shoot a weapon, to shoot a pistol or a rifle, who's never touched a weapon, is just so much better than a man because they have no preconceived notions. They will become the student. They're like, I know nothing about this. And they can do really well. They're not jerking the trigger. Some guy, you're like, okay, let's go out to the range. I want to watch you hold the weapon. They're all like, yeah, I got this. I've been shooting since I was a kid. And they're holding it sideways or they're scratching their head with it. And it's like, no, there is a big advantage to having no bad habits whenever you're learning certain aspects of the field craft. Well, it's funny you say that because I think, well, I know I wrote in Blowing My Cover. I think I did. Anyway, if I didn't, I'll still say so here. But there was one Harvard grad in my training class and that dude like nearly shot his own toes off (laughs) weapons training. I loved weapons training. Now, I will say I did kind of epitomize the female driver in our defensive driving crash and burn class. I was such a fucking disaster to start with knocking over cones and and driving like granny speed but i got the most improved award there you go she's doing the pit maneuver by the time we're done she's yeah. turning that thing around yeah. <laughs> and now I, I consider that one of the most useful parts of our uh, paramilitary training was the defensive driving class because i have carried those skills with me for the rest of my life i mean i think i'm a pretty damn good driver i would agree <laughs> So speaking of taking these skills outside of the CIA into the civilian sector, into your private life, how much of that still influences you now? And is there any part of it that you wish that you didn't have those habits carrying over into what you're doing now? Like when you're talking to somebody, when you're in a conversation, whatever the case may be, is because that's still going to kick in in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, it does. And I think I can answer that fairly simply, which is that those kind of skills can have a place in your professional life, but they should never have a place in your personal life. So it's one thing to use those kind of skills of manipulation and salesmanship and whatever, for what, even if you're selling widgets, you know, I'm not someone who could ever sell widgets, but part of the work that I do now is development work for a nonprofit that combats human trafficking. And so for me to bring the skills that I honed at the CIA of being able to understand what makes people tick. What will make this person want to commit their time, funds, or energy to a cause that I feel very passionately about? So for me, there's something super exciting and fun and really gratifying about taking these kind of nefarious skills that I learned at the CIA and really, really, truly putting them toward a better cause or toward a higher cause. I will say it takes a while to break yourself of 
letting those kind of skills slip into your personal life, whether it be white lies to friends and relationships or just compartmentalizing one's life. I am still very guilty of that. I run my life very much like a CIA operative. And it get in the way of relationships because I have this very compartmentalized life. You know, there's this that I do professionally, you know, and then there's my children and then there's my love relationship and none of those should be mixed. And, you know, that cannot feel good if you're on the other end of that. But it was a way that I got used to running my life. So I think it's like all of those kind of tricks of the trade, people skills, trade craft, being able to read people, being able to sell someone on, on an idea work very well professionally and even more so if you have a, a really worthy mission that you're working toward. But when they come into your personal life, yeah, they cause problems. Well, I think it's going to make you a great mom, first of all. <laughs> you're going to see well, it coming from a mile away. Yeah, my kids are now teenagers and I mean, they don't put credence in anything. (laughs) (laughs) But also you're taking these skills that you've honed and now you're using it in this nonprofit capacity. Tell us about that and tell us about the mission that you guys have, because as you and I spoke, when I run the four by four by 48 by David Goggins, I've run it for the last two years and I'm raising money to the charity that I do it for is the Stop Human Trafficking Coalition of Central Missouri, because I got to meet their chair when we were on a TEDx together. And I just love seeing the way that she's actually putting it into play. So tell us about the nonprofit that you're working with and the mission and what we can do to help with that. I would love to. So the issue of human trafficking is one that first came to my attention years ago when I was working for the CIA. And I was working in the Balkans in former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia And this area of the world really was, and is to this day, you know, a hotbed and a nexus of human trafficking. And it was deeply disturbing to me as a woman, as an American, you know, as an American representative in that country. And I kind of tried to make some noise about it. You know, at this time I was a CIA officer and the, the agency was like, and the headquarters was like, yeah, that's not our thing. And that's true. It's, it just wasn't their thing. Now, All told, there is a lot of linkage between human trafficking and organized crime and terrorism and the drug trade, but I won't get into that. But anyway, it was something that bothered me over there. And then returning to the United States and realizing that this issue of human trafficking and and particularly sex trafficking of young women and children, this is an issue that does not just exist in the Balkans, that does not just exist in Asia, that it happens in our own backyards. And aside from that, that the U.S. dollar is the biggest driver of human trafficking and sex trafficking. Cut to the chase, I met Nick McKinley, who's the executive director of an organization called Deliver Fund. And Nick is also former CIA And I would just say my first conversation with him, he was talking to me about what Deliver Fund does. And I just said, all right, what can I do to help? Like, I want to get involved. What can I do to help? So I've been raising money for Deliver Fund and also, you know, just spreading the word about the organization. I'm very picky about not just causes that I throw my weight behind but also organizations. And one of the reasons that Deliver Fund was so attractive to me is because there's a lot of anti-human trafficking and anti-sex slavery organizations out there. And some are fantastic and legitimate. The cause is one that we obviously all believe in. What really attracted me to Deliver Fund was it brings the module of intelligence collection to the problem It's by and large former CIA, former alphabet soup people, veterans. So people who have spent years, if not decades, fighting the issues of terrorism, global terrorism, bringing all of those skills, all of those expertise, and really cutting edge technology to the issue of human trafficking. So it's more than just sort of being rah-rah for the cause. It's attaching myself to an organization that I think can solve this problem. It's like, we all want to back a winning horse. And I'm like, this is the winning horse in the fight against human trafficking. And for those of you that don't understand how far reaching human trafficking is, it is a multi-billion dollar industry 
from the statistics that I saw today, next to narcotics, it is the second highest illegal form of crime out there. And there are 20 to 25 different kinds of human trafficking. So again, sex slavery, child slavery, but even these people, like you said, in some of these third world countries that are being brought in, working in a sweatshop. And we are supporting that by purchasing those sort of products or there's a big connection now where they say like Pornhub, for example, if you go onto that platform and you're like, well, this is a victimless crime. There is all kinds of child pornography. There's all kinds of people that have been trafficked. People that are in the porn industry, male and female, are usually trafficked in some capacity or they are groomed from that place. So having that happen, you're supporting it. You're actually encouraging it. So if you think that you're not, understand that there is a direct correlation to that. And then what she's talking about, there is so many illegal things that the dovetail over this subject matter. So this is something where, again, imagine if it was your child, imagine if it was your friend, imagine if somebody was grabbed, taken to pull them from the United States, put them in Mexico, they're addicted to heroin, and now they're trafficked back over the state lines. I live in Oklahoma, and that's what got me with when I was working with the other organization, they would bring them straight up I-35 to the center of the United States and then just distribute it out like they were distributing product because to them, that's what they are. It is a product that they're selling and they're making money off of. And it is a fucking travesty. And I'm just so glad that you're putting your weight, your experience behind that because I talk about these things and I've learned some of it, but you understand it from the psyche. You understand what motivates this person. You understand how they think. Again, even this notion of people up until recently didn't understand the correlation between human trafficking and say the UFC fights or a big fight in Vegas or a football game. So there's all these things where they come together. Yeah. And I think they're kind of uncomfortable truths and that can kind of turn people away or make people numb. But it's one of those issues that I'm like, we can put an end to this. We really can in our time. I'm sometimes mistaken for a badass, you know, or for someone. <laughs> you are a badass. Come yeah. on, just own it. Not who does no wrong, but, you know, who's who's extremely competent. And, and certainly I feel like I am. What I have learned about the situations of women and children who have been trafficked and the ways in which those who traffic them use kind of those same skills of manipulation and figuring out what are these personal vulnerabilities So as a mom, as a woman, as a U.S. citizen, it's untenable to me that we could all just let slavery exist, whether it be in this country, whether it be globally, and not do something about it. And there is no other way to spin it than it is slavery. It's modern day slavery. It's exciting to me to throw my weight behind this issue. And at Deliver Fund, I've met uh, survivors of human trafficking who work for Deliver Fund who are truly, I've worked with a lot of, to circle back to the badass comment, I've worked with a lot of badass women. And the women that I've met via Deliver Fund who have survived and not just survived, but thrived after being trafficked are truly the most badass, like incredible people I've ever met in my life. I couldn't agree more. You and I understand that adversity is something that for better, for worse, it sucks at the time. But oftentimes, if we have that hindsight, we can see that we're going to learn something from it. And the pain and discomfort is the best teacher oftentimes. Can you tell us about an adversity that you've gone through recently that at the time seemed like, why is this happening to me? But now, even in the midst of recovery, you can say, oh, this is what I'm learning. This is the opportunity within this. So I do just have to tell the story for listeners that you and I were supposed to speak over a month ago and the day, (laughs) I think it was the day before we were supposed to record. Well, first of all, okay, hold on, hold on. Clean slate. I'm going to go back even further to when you and I first spoke about me coming on the podcast. And I said to you, you know what, Marcus, I've never... I don't know. I've never really had any adversity in my life. And you were like, you convinced me to come on and and talk. And and you had something that was brilliant about, I don't know, something about the optic of adversity. So I said, okay, I'll go on. And then we arranged a time. And then I think it was the day before I was riding my bike home in Annapolis where I live on a (laughs) perfectly flat trail. 
But it started to rain and I was on a road bike, which I didn't realize had racing tires. Long story short, going down a very, very slight incline and around a turn, head over heels. And as I was going down, everything was kind of happening in slow motion. And I was like, I instinctively knew this is going to be bad. And then I hit the ground and it was bad. I didn't realize how bad it was. I knew I was in a lot of pain. And this was kind of such retrospectively, such an illuminating experience for me because despite outward appearances, I'm not really stoic, like in the face of like this, like physical pain and discomfort, nor am I particularly emotionally stoic. But anyway, Belle was in a lot of pain, must have been in shock because I got up, got back on the bike and rode seven miles almost back to my house in the rain, not realizing that I had a broken neck. And then later that night went to the emergency room and realized that I had um, fractured my C1 vertebrae. And so I wrote to you and I said, look, I feel awkward (laughs) saying this, but I broke my neck. Can we postpone? And so we postponed, but here I am in this brace. And I want to say this to your credit. You actually said, you're like, I can do the interview. I think I can still do it. I was like, are you out of your mind? No, you broke your C1 vertebrae. No, we're not doing this. We're going to get you better. I think I said jokingly, I was like, we'll have something to talk about. You're like, oh yeah. Yes. And we will, because I will be straight up with you. First of all, I think it's important to note that like I had actually watched your TED Talk and read The Gift of Adversity before you and I even met. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really struck a chord with me. And this was obviously before this incident occurred. You know, I've had like I broke my tailbone a couple of times or whatever. But this particular injury where I was told at the onset that I am extremely lucky not to have been paralyzed or not to have died. This is my first rodeo with a serious injury. And it has been, I mean, I hate to sound like a Pollyanna about it and have people saying, whatever, lady. But I have to say, very soon after the incident, I started to look at what happened as an incredible gift from whatever one's version of God is because the outcome wasn't worse. And also because talk about getting some instant fucking perspective on everything. Your life can change in 24 seconds and mine changed pretty mildly, all things considered, you know, sooner or later, I'll have this brace off. I might not be exactly the same person physically that I was before, but all things considered, I would say this has been a a some gain psychologically (laughs) and philosophically. I couldn't agree more. It's interesting. We can acquire knowledge. We can learn things, but we often have to have some sort of catalyst to force us to put it into play because we had the luxury of not using it. Like you said, if there's no adversity in our life, but yet in those 24 seconds when everything changed in your life, what quarter perspective does it give to you besides the fact that you were very lucky that you weren't injured? Were there additional deeper components that kind of caught you by surprise, perhaps? So I didn't even realize quite how bad it was until I was in the ER and they did a CAT scan and they said, you know, the C1 is broken. And the nurse told me, and that's a pretty important vertebrae. And meanwhile, I'm on a text chain with my ex-husband and my two kids. And I said, oh, it looks like I broke the C1. Well, my kids immediately Googled that. And my older son came later to pick me up at the ER. And the stricken look on his face and his concern, he had looked up what are the consequences of a C1 fracture and had seen, you know, paralysis and death and whatever. And he was really, really worried. And, you know, I'm at that stage in my life where I joke, you know, my kids are teenagers. They don't need me anymore. You know, one's 17 and one's 15. But experiencing, feeling in the air, the energy of my son and his his worry and stress over something happened to me, filled me with such a sense of truly the most important thing that I've done on 
planet Earth is to raise these two boys, and they do still need me. I am someone who has lived most of my life at a pace that I now recognize is kind of unsustainable. And breaking my neck made me realize, like, there are consequences to trying to sustain a pace And I don't want to say a focus, it's almost a lack of focus because it's like, I always have so many balls I'm juggling in the air that having this accident and forcing my life to be completely slowed down, I can't even walk all my dogs at the same time. So it's been a gift. It's taught me the hard way to be in the moment that I am in right now. I'm in this moment with you right now. So, you know, I'm not checking my phone. I'm not thinking about something else. I am in this moment with you right now. And while that might've been easy to achieve for a podcast, it was something that I struggled with. I think in my relationships, you know, with my kids, with my loved ones, with my families, like my mind is always a few steps ahead. And being forced to sit in one place and not move around has has forced me also to still my brain a little bit. So beautiful. I love that reflection because you're so right. Like it helps you realize how much of the stuff we were worried about is just superfluous bullshit. It's not important. If everything is a priority, then nothing is a priority. And like you said, your boys, that that's the most important thing. It makes you understand like all this stuff, like you said, these unsustainable metrics that really don't mean anything. I learned the same thing where the amount of money that I have in the bank is just going to be a number on a computer screen or a slip of paper. The house I live in, not that big of a deal. The kind of clothes I wear or the kind of car I drove really doesn't matter. So if that's the case, and now this drives you not only as a mom, but again, with what you're doing here with your nonprofit with Deliver Fund and everything that you're putting your weight and your energy and your your soul behind. And that's so powerful because again, until you experience something like this, it's really hard. Like we can sit back and meditate on it or watch a TED talk or read a book, but until you're there and it's like, all that stuff sounds like a bunch of flowery bullshit until you're the guy in the bed or the woman in the bed. And now you're like, oh my God, now what the fuck do I do? Right. No, it's so true. It's so true. And I think if anything too, one of the things that has frustrated me about being injured is like, I'm like, oh, I have stuff to do. You know, I've got to be out there. I do want to be out there raising money for Deliver Fund. I do want to be out there living my life and recognizing like, not how much I have to live for just for myself, but like, yeah, okay, I do more than take up space here. I'm working towards something that's helping other people and that can help other people. And I want to be clear too, though, that there's a million ways that people can do that. Like for me personally, it was like, all right, I'm going to start doing work for Deliver Fun. I'm going to raise money for them. I'm going to throw my weight behind them. When I'm out in public, I'm going to talk about them. I'm going to spread the word. You might have a job that's selling widgets. And I never mean to like suggest that like, if you're not working for a nonprofit and, you know, giving a hundred percent of your money, then, you know, you're just taking up space. That's not the case. I think one of the things that being a mom has taught me, you know, I joined the CIA partly because it's like, I want to make a difference on this global scale and nothing will shrink your world smaller and faster than becoming a mom. And and all of a sudden it's like, I just want to keep this kid alive for the next 24 hours until I die. But the point being that like, I've realized every little thing we do, every little gesture we make has ripple effects. And each and every one of us can make those differences in small ways. So, you know, for me, recognizing, all right, I can throw my weight behind this fight to end human trafficking, which is something that I feel passionately about and something I do feel like should not exist and we can make it not exist. And so I know what I can do best to help that cause. For someone else, it might be giving money monthly. It might not be that cause. It might be something else. But the point being that if each and every one of us do whatever we can on a daily basis to make the world a little bit of a better place, I mean, for me, that's maybe not even like picking up the gauntlet and picking a fight with someone politically or whatever, just working toward a more peaceful, harmonious country and world that is respectful of human rights and we'll be in a good place. Sorry, that was kind of a rant. No, that's why we're doing this. (laughs) And that's the beauty of this. You have a very 
particular set of skills and you're applying it towards the things that mean the most to you in your life. And I think that's the big message is like everybody has a skill set, whatever it is. How can you leverage it towards something that you actually give a shit about? The reason why people get burnt out is because they're working on stuff that doesn't matter to them. But you and I are trying to work on things. And again, it usually takes some sort of adversity to make you realize what really matters. What am I still doing that isn't necessary? And then why am I wasting my time and energy on those things when I could be applying it towards this? And that's the goal. So if you're listening, this is your wake-up call. This is your kick in the ass. This is your C1 vertebra fracture or your C5, C6 ruptured disc that paralyzes you. Stop for a second and ask, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Is this going to matter in five years from now? And if it's not, maybe there's something else you could be looking towards. If it is, I've had people that are executives that say, how do I push harder? And then I say, don't ask if you can push harder. Ask if you're doing it for the right reasons. And if you're doing it for the right reasons, then you'll find that maybe you're just kind of having a pity party. But if it's something that is artificial, that's not worth it, you'll be like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. And then that's where the adversity starts again. Now you're like, okay, am I going to be able to do this or not? Where can we find out more about Deliver Fun? Where we can find out more about Lindsay Moran and everything that you have going on? Great. Well, to find out more about me, you can go to lindsaymoran.com. I have my own website or blowingmycover.com, which is... Amazing book, guys. Pick it up. Yeah. It's a light read. It's, it's funny. I have another book in me. And that's another thing that the gift of breaking my neck, that's going to be my book, Marcus. Hey, do it. Do it. I'll do the forward. <laughs> Let me know. I'll do a blur. Um, this period of slowness and, and reflection has, has given me some time to think about, okay, what do I really want to write? So lindsaymoran.com, blowingmycover.com, and deliverfund.org. And you can learn all about me, the book, the organization. You can give money. You can reach out to me, lindsay.moran at deliverfund.org. Or you can reach me via my website. But, you know, I love hearing from people. I love to talk. I loved your book. And I love your perspective, Marcus. I really do. Like, I was serious when I first spoke to you and said, you know, I don't feel like I've had any adversity in my life. And now I'm like, okay, I've had a taste of it. And it tastes pretty damn good (laughs) at the end of the day. It does. It does. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much. Also, is there any better fashion accessory? I mean, it it goes with the blue. It really sets off your eyes. I think it's perfect. I, I was awesome. laughing because I was on a on a Zoom call with some of the Deliver Fun folks the other day, and Christy, our head of development, was like, "Oh, Lindsay just puts that on for the Zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> she just wants attention." Yeah. Awesome. Well, and I am planning. I'm doing a hike in Iceland in September with two of my girlfriends, and I was clearing it with my surgeon, who thinks that I should be able to do it. I said, "Look, my girlfriends, you know, we're just carrying day packs. My girlfriends will carry my pack for me." He said, you might be in the brace. And I said, yeah. And that, of course, I have an excuse for my girlfriends to carry my pack for me. And he said, even if you're out of the brace, just wear it and just get them to carry it. (laughs) So that would be a definite like CIA Lindsay move. (laughs) There it is. Very Machiavellian. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Thank you for your time. And thank you for fighting the good fight. Thanks for having me, Marcus. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Octa Non Verba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.